Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. Now, in its 175th year, Hillsdale is a truly independent institution where learning is prized and intellectual enthusiasm is valued. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Our number, 877 Mr. Producer, did you reach out to John Bolton and ask him to uh, come on the program for a full-hour interview? You did, and you got nothing. His publisher, Simon & Schuster. And you contacted his publicist, I take it, Mr. Producer? And they didn't even have the respect to get back to me? Uh, must be a tough interview to get. Well, at least tough for those who who he thinks are going to be patsies or pushovers, I guess. And I watched a little clip of his interview with Martha Raddatz, an old Clintonoid, excuse me, rep- uh, uh, Obamaoid, a reporter, of course. Uh, Obama, uh, the the missus attended his, her wedding. Um. President's not qualified to be president of the United States, and on and on and on. There's John giving aid and comfort to the enemy, all of our enemies. Shocking. And apparently, according to John Roberts on Fox, a report, the book is filled with discussions about negotiations the president had with foreign leaders. What kind of book is that? And so the Justice Department should throw the book at John Bolton because this is about the office of the presidency. I don't care what's in his book. I don't care if it's a coloring book. This is about the office of the presidency. No individual has the right to go into the office of the presidency under cover of being a loyal employee all the time scheming and preparing to cash out. No president can operate under those circumstances. So the Justice Department has to defend the office of the presidency for this president and future presidents. What John Bolton has done is diabolical. 
utterly diabolical. And he riches himself on top of it. Same as with his lawyer, Chuck Cooper. What Chuck Cooper's done is is abandoned 40 years of patriotism and constitutionalism. 40 years. I hope it was worth it. But it's really not. And I'll talk more about that later. There's a new Fox poll out of likely voters. So I want to stop right there. A poll of likely voters is not reliable. You want a poll of registered voters. Excuse me. The opposite. Fox has done a poll of, reading my notes, registered voters. Well, you want a poll of likely voters. That's the most accurate. And you would think everybody knows this by now. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to get to the Supreme Court because as I posted on uh, Mark Levin show Facebook and Mark Levin show Twitter earlier today, this week, the United States Supreme Court, those justices have done more damage to the rule of law and the Constitution than the rioters in the streets who've done enormous damage. But the Supreme Court is lawless, utterly lawless. And so that requires a very good examination, and we'll get to that too. But I want to get to this polling stuff. And I don't normally get into polls, but I think it's worthwhile because I'm starting to think uh, that the purpose here is, okay, let's see here. So Eli Lake is a columnist and an old friend at Bloomberg jumping into the defense of Bolton. Um, And he says, of course, Bolton's account is important because it's devastating. And why would they try and prevent his book, you know, let me just deal with this. Why would they try and prevent his book from coming out if it's all false? Now, Eli, I thought you were better than this. I guess I'm wrong. You can have classified information in a book that gets it wrong. You can have 20% classified information in a book that gets it 80% wrong. But even if it's 100% wrong... The principle is, whether you're a national security advisor or another top advisor to the President of the United States, that circle belongs to the executive branch and the head of the executive branch, the President. That's how you get various privileges. The privileges are the President's privileges. That's why you have laws in place that prevent people from just writing books willy-nilly, depending on who they are and what's in the book. So semantical games that are utterly illogical really are not particularly helpful here, Eli. I've known John Bolton longer than you. Perhaps he's been a source of yours for a long time. And I've known his lawyer, Chuck Schumer, very, very well, very close, longer than you. And if you're not going to at least call out the betrayal and the damage this does to the office of the presidency, then I can't take you seriously either. I meant Chuck Cooper, right. Well, getting pretty close, really. People shouldn't defend this because they like somebody or don't like somebody. This is indefensible. It's utterly indefensible. Plus, it's, it's incomprehensible. If you really believed for your 17-month period with the President of the United States, that he was a danger, he talks about, that he was a threat, that he wasn't up to the judge. Why are you waiting 17 months? And why in your resignation didn't you have a 
public press conference to talk all about it. And why wouldn't you make yourself available for an impeachment hearing? And by the way, I don't support that. I'm just saying, why wouldn't you? And yet Eli doesn't seem to be troubled by any of that. I thought he was an intrepid reporter. Sorry, Eli. It's just absurd what you wrote. Absurd. You either believe in national security or you don't. You either believe in the rule of law or you don't. Does anybody really think some staffer, national security advisor, deputy national security advisor, should be able to, after they leave, write a tell-all book about various negotiations that took place while the president's still in office, while he still has to run foreign policy, while he's still in charge of national security? Anybody think that's a good idea? And also, many of the things I've seen written about him, and including written by John Bolton in the op-ed, The consequences he talks about didn't happen because the president didn't do them. You can go down the list. Who's been tougher on China than Trump? Nobody. Trump was tougher on Russia. Tougher on Russia than Obama. And you might even argue tougher than Bush, 43, and tougher than Clinton. Who's been tougher on Iran? Nobody's been tougher on Iran than Trump. Well, Mark, what about Afghanistan? The president ran for office. You can agree with him or disagree with him. He wanted to, uh, to get our troops out of Afghanistan. He's explained why over and over again. I know Mattis didn't want to do it, and Kelly didn't want to do it, and Bolton didn't want to do it, but that's his position. Who's been stronger in defense of the state of Israel than this president? Nobody. Period. Who's been tough on the terrorists, the Palestinians? Nobody. The Democrat Party's selling out to the, uh, uh, to the uh, Palestinian Authority, among others. Who's built up the United States military? It wasn't Obama. It wasn't Clinton. It wasn't even Bush 43 that much. It was Trump and is Trump. Who's taken more steps to secure our borders than any president in my memory? Trump. Well, you know, he's pulling troops out of Syria. Yes, he was pulling troops out of Syria. And I disagreed with that. But it appears that he was right. At least to some extent. And what Eli doesn't mention either is John Bolton had a very senior position with Bush 43, and I wasn't even aware of this until I just looked at it. Yeah, that he had a senior position, yes. But that he trashed Bush 43, too. That he trashed him. And so there are issues here. Serious issues here. Oh, and by the way, I need to make a correction. I don't often have to do this, but I need to do it here. Uh, I had mentioned the other night that the Free Beacon was headed by Matt Continetti. That's not correct. He was one of the founders, but he's not any longer. He just has a column there from time to time, like at National Review. He's at the American Enterprise Institute. And so I will continue to be a patron of the Free Beacon, which is an excellent site. I'll be right back. Mark in.
At Hillsdale College, faith and learning are integrated in pursuit of a common end. And I've been talking a lot about four pillars of the Hillsdale College mission. Learning, character, faith, and freedom. Today, I'd like to focus on faith. As the founders of our nation knew, God is indeed the first authority and the motive toward which all learning moves. Hillsdale understands that we come to really know things through reason and faith. And their students are taught to pursue truth through both. Founded in 1844 by Christians, students of all faiths are welcome at Hillsdale College and always have been. How does the college teach the essentials of the Christian faith and religion, all students must take a course, the Western theological tradition, as part of Hillsdale's rigorous core curriculum. The college also offers majors in religion, philosophy and religion, and Christian studies. Hillsdale's campus is a welcoming place in which to discuss and practice faith. Respectful dialogue among Christians of different denominations and with students of non-Christian faiths is just one hallmark of this stellar college. Now to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. levinforhillsdale.com. What John Bolton and his cheerleaders are doing and have done is strengthen our enemies. Because the people most interested in reading this book and all the fiction that it contains, no doubt, all the self-serving information in there, because I doubt he's very uh, critical of himself, Bolton, and his uh, inability to get along with most of the other people in the uh, White House and in these cabinet departments. The people most interested in this, and it'll be interpreted for them, will be the, uh, the dictators around the world who are our enemies. Putin, Xi, uh, the Islamo-Nazi who runs Iran, all of them. He's given conservatives a bad name. He's given uh, Hawks a bad name. Uh, and he has not just humiliated himself. It was just that I wouldn't care. But all the people over all these years that have stood by him because they agree with many of his positions, he threw them all under the bus. But again, more than that, he has literally damaged the office of the presidency literally damaged the office of the presidency. You don't see this happen in Democrat administrations. And they're sitting back and they're laughing. And then, of course, the excuse is he doesn't deserve to be president. He shouldn't be president. Oh, oh, okay, thank you. And we look at Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Joe Biden's family has enriched itself. Joe Biden has enriched himself, but you're not allowed to go there. You're not allowed to look. And if you do, you'll get impeached. You look at the Joe Biden candidacy. You and I are literally living through and watching a complete farce. Joe Biden is mentally handicapped. I say this without provocation. He needs help. He needs help. He should be focused on his own mental health every day. Instead, they wind him up like a doll, tell him what to say, and he regurgitates it as best as he can. We have a Democrat party and a media and apparently never Trumpers and and people of that sort who are perfectly fine with this. Perfectly fine with this. Of course, Putin and Xi and the rest of them could never take advantage of Biden, could they? Are we supposed to wait till after the election? God forbid if he's elected to figure it all out and have the country go through that. And this is a serious matter. Selection isn't just about the president, it's about the former vice president. 
It's shocking. It's shocking how unqualified, as a matter of mental capability, Joe Biden is. And then when you look at his record, it's a disaster. And so now he sits back, he regurgitates what he's told, he tweets. He doesn't know how to tweet, but he puts out tweets and statements that whatever Trump does isn't good enough. Trump's responsible for 60,000 dead as a result of this virus. Are you aware of that? Trump's responsible for, quote-unquote, police brutality. And if Trump doesn't move hard left and embrace the agenda that Joe Biden has embraced, he's not for minorities, he's not for the little guy, he's not for health care, he's not for this or he's not for that. We have a right as a people to see Joe Biden stand on his own two feet, to be examined and cross-examined, to engage to see what he's capable of. These elections are not not even about the candidates. They're about us and the future of the country. And we're supposed to just go through the motions here because the media insist on it. This election isn't just about Donald Trump. It's about Joe Biden, too. I want to begin here, and we're going to take a little time on this, about the Supreme Court. As you know, my first book was called Men in Black, How the Supreme Court is Destroying America. Now what happens is, a president does his very, very best. Reagan tried, others, Nixon tried. To appoint people to the court who are going to actually uphold their oath to the fidelity of the Constitution. Who are not going to legislate. Because if you legislate, you completely undermine the structure of the Constitution. You have now seized legislative authority from the representatives of the people. You're nothing more than a Politburo. And you're just as tyrannical and fascistic as a Politburo. And so when a majority of justices take a law and rewrite it or take a policy position and justify it without any statutory basis, these are the acts that you would expect from tyrannical and fascistic politburos. So when the court does that, that's what it is. It's a tyrannical and fascistic politburo. Now I will underscore and explain this when I return. At Hillsdale College, faith and learning are integrated in pursuit of a common end. And I've been talking a lot about four pillars of the Hillsdale College mission. Learning, character, faith, and freedom. Today, I'd like to focus on faith. As the founders of our nation knew, God is indeed the first authority and the motive toward which all learning moves. Hillsdale understands that we come to really know things through reason and faith. And their students are taught to pursue truth through both. Founded in 1844 by Christians, students of all faiths are welcome at Hillsdale College and always have been. How does the college teach the essentials of the Christian faith and religion, all students must take a course, the Western theological tradition, as part of Hillsdale's rigorous core curriculum. The college also offers majors in religion, philosophy and religion, and Christian studies. Hillsdale's campus is a welcoming place in which to discuss and practice faith. Respectful dialogue among Christians of different denominations and with students of non-Christian faiths is just one hallmark of this stellar college. Now to learn more, visit LevinforHillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. LevinforHillsdale.com. 
Mentor.com. Mark Levin, America's mentor of conservatism. Call now at 877-381-3811. Now, we had this decision earlier in the week where Justice Gorsuch and Justice Roberts, Chief Justice, joined the four radicals on the court. And Gorsuch actually wrote the opinion. He took Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and rewrote it. And basically, it says uh, there shall be no discrimination, again, thumbnail sketch, based on a number of factors, including sex. In other words, one's sex. And Justice Gorsuch had extended that to mean sexual orientation. How do you even know what somebody's sexual orientation is unless they tell you? And how do you inquire about that without violating the law? But that's beside the point. So what he's done is he rewrote the statute, which Congress refused to do. And now there'll be massive amounts of uh, consequences that are known and unintended consequences involving litigation and so forth for businesses all over this country. And some very, very complex and complicated questions as a result. Does this exclude religious organizations that don't accept uh, these kinds of uh, sexual orientation? Health plans and so on. And so now the justices will get to decide all this stuff. It appears that they've nationalized any issues that relate to our culture or to so-called social issues or religious issues. Because you see, we are incapable of making these decisions ourselves. So six Ivy League lawyers will make those decisions for us. And so now we have the decision that was issued today. We have Barack Obama, who unconstitutionally, also in violation of separation of powers, decided since he couldn't get a law passed through Congress, despite multiple efforts trying to do so, he would pass one himself. So we have what is called a fiat And who issues fiats? Dictators. And the Supreme Court said that's okay if we agree with it. So here you have a bald-faced violation of separation of powers, just as you did on Monday. On Monday, the court decided we will legislate. And today the court decided we will legislate on top of Obama legislating. So the two branches of government that aren't supposed to be legislating are legislating. Except when it comes to Trump. So Obama puts this DACA in place, which has absolutely no legal or, or, or statutory basis whatsoever. And what does the Supreme Court say under John Roberts? John Roberts says, well, you didn't, you didn't overturn Obama's executive order by properly instituting the uh, Administrative Procedures Act. This has nothing to do with the Administrative Procedures Act. This is a constitutional matter. Donald Trump actually fixed the constitutional violation. The Supreme Court, ladies and gentlemen, wanted two results. He wanted a result on Monday, and it wanted a result today. It wanted illegal aliens, DACAs, uh, to be covered and protected, And Monday, it wanted to expand the Civil Rights Act to include LGBTQ uh, individuals. 
And in the Monday decision, Gorsuch is saying, see, I'm a textualist. I'm an originalist. So it was particularly sleazy. As it is here on Thursday. President of the United States reports Fox News in the wake of Thursday's defeat at the Supreme Court. See, this is how it's reported. It's his defeat. It's our defeat. Anybody who believes in the Constitution, we were just defeated by lawlessness, by fascistic behavior. His efforts to repeal the Obama-era DACA. It's really appalling. The Constitution belongs to we the people. And so I posted earlier today, as I pointed out, that this week the Supreme Court has done more damage to the Constitution and the rule of law than the rioters in the streets. Because the Supreme Court does it under color of law. And they show no respect for the Constitution and law any more than a looter does. They're looting us of our liberties. They're looting us of our protections under the Constitution. Barack Obama never believed DACA was constitutional. Let's go to cut two. This is July 25, 2011. Hat tip PJ Media. Cut two, go. I swore an oath to uphold the laws on the books. But that doesn't mean I don't know very well the real pain and heartbreak the deportations cause. I share your concerns, and I understand them. Now, I know some people want me to bypass Congress and change the laws on my own. And, and believe me, uh, right now, dealing with Congress, the idea... But, but, but believe me... Uh, Believe me, the idea of of doing things on my own is very tempting. I I promise you, not just just on immigration reform. But that's not how how our system works. But notice the audience says, yeah, do it, do it. Do it. Fascism in the name of liberalism is no vice. But that wasn't the only time. September 28, 2011, Obama again. Cut three, go. You know, I, I just have to continue to say this notion that somehow I can just change the laws unilaterally is just not true. We've, we are doing everything we can administratively. But the fact of the matter is there are laws on the books that I have to enforce. Uh, and I think that th- th- there's been uh, a great disservice done to the cause of getting the DREAM Act passed and getting comprehensive immigration passed by perpetrating the notion that somehow by myself I can go and do these things. It's just not true. But it is now. And the Supreme Court just upheld it, gave its rubber stamp. With a lawless Supreme Court and a lawless rogue Chief Justice of the United States. And here's Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate today. Cut six, Mr. Producer, go. Today's decision from the U.S. Supreme Court in Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California is disgraceful. Judging is not a game. It's not supposed to be a game. But sadly, 
Over recent years, more and more, Chief Justice Roberts has been playing games with the court to achieve the policy outcomes he desires. This case concerned President Obama's executive amnesty. Amnesty that President Obama decreed directly contrary to federal law. He did so with no legal authority. He did so in open defiance of federal statutes. And of course, he was celebrated in the press for doing so. Obama's executive amnesty was illegal the day it was issued, and not one single justice of the nine Supreme Court justices disputed that. Now, Roberts has been involved in all these decisions. The two this week, the Obamacare decision where he truly turned the Constitution inside out using the tax clause of the Constitution. Scalia and the others were shocked. Even Anthony Kennedy was absolutely stunned by what Roberts did. We have a citizenship question on whether the census can ask people if they're citizens or not. Seems to me a fairly rational thing. Uh, And Justice Roberts leading the court said no. No. Then we have the LGBTQ decision Monday. Now we have the DACA decision today. Roberts has flipped. He's gone. Oh, he'll throw you a bone here and there. He's no William Rehnquist. He is a lousy chief justice. Lousy. He's playing to the style section page of the Washington Post and to the New York Times. He's gone. Here's more Ted Cruz speaking specifically of what I just talked about, that citizenship census question. Cut seven, go. In another case where the chief joined with the four liberals from the court and struck down another one of the Trump administration's policies. In that case a year ago, the Commerce Department, which is charged with the, by the Constitution with conducting a census every 10 years, the Commerce Department wanted to ask a common sense question. The course of the census, are you a citizen of the United States? That's a question that has been asked in nearly every census since 1820. And ain't that complicated asking someone in the course of a census, are you a citizen? But in today's politically fraught world, the Democratic Party has decided they are the party of illegal immigration, as is the press. As is John Roberts. I want to turn to Men in Black, my first book. The biggest myth about judges is that they're somehow imbued with greater insight, wisdom, and vision than the rest of us. That for some reason, God Almighty has endowed them with superior judgment about justice and fairness. But the truth is that judges are men and women with human imperfections and frailties. Some have been brilliant, principled, and moral. Others have been mentally impaired, venal, and even racist. Barely 100 justices have served on the United States Supreme Court. Remember when this was written in 2005. They're unelected. They're virtually unaccountable. They're largely unknown to most Americans, and they serve for life. They work in a cloistered setting hidden from public view. Yet in many ways, the justices are more powerful than members of Congress and the president. 
The Supreme Court today is involved in nearly every aspect of modern life, regularly vetoing the decisions of elected federal and state authorities. As few as five justices, like today, can and do dictate economic, cultural, criminal, and security policy for the entire nation. So who are these justices? Well, it's impossible to generalize, but here are some of the more stunning personalities. So when we come back, I will show you who some of these justices have been. Because we hold them up high because we expect them to be independent of politics, to be as objective as possible, to really revere the same Constitution that we revere. But many of them don't. And Justice Roberts is one of them. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. At Hillsdale College, faith and learning are integrated in pursuit of a common end. And I've been talking a lot about four pillars of the Hillsdale College mission. Learning, character, faith, and freedom. Today, I'd like to focus on faith. As the founders of our nation knew, God is indeed the first authority and the motive toward which all learning moves. Hillsdale understands that we come to really know things through reason and faith. And their students are taught to pursue truth through both. Founded in 1844 by Christians, students of all faiths are welcome at Hillsdale College and always have been. How does the college teach the essentials of the Christian faith and religion, all students must take a course, the Western theological tradition, as part of Hillsdale's rigorous core curriculum. The college also offers majors in religion, philosophy and religion, and Christian studies. Hillsdale's campus is a welcoming place in which to discuss and practice faith. Respectful dialogue among Christians of different denominations and with students of non-Christian faiths is just one hallmark of this stellar college. Now to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Levinforhillsdale.com. Well, unfortunately, it's a short segment. I want to get to this. I want to make the point because the court is destroying itself like so much else in this society. The court is destroying itself with the American people. It's destroying its reputation. And there's still more decisions to come. And I suspect more more of this to come. And by the way. Will we get anybody writing a book who's around Joe Biden to tell us the truth about what an imbecile he is? Of course not. And so here we have a phony issue. This guy writes a book, and so this will be the news. The news, the news, the news, the book. The book can't be tested against the truth. It's much like Jim Comey's self-serving notes. But this is where we are today. The coronavirus pandemic has turned economic expansion upside down. Up until recently, we saw significant job loss, furloughs, and pay cuts, all of which slammed household finances, making it difficult, really, for millions of Americans to pay bills. Now, if you can relate, and you feel like it's going to take some time to get things back in order, then listen to this. A mortgage refinance is a very easy way for you to save hundreds, even $1,000 a month. Money that you're giving away, you're burning, simply by lowering your rate or consolidating your debt. And I know just the people to help you. The people who help Mr. Producer, the people who help my daughter. American Financing, it's a family-owned business. Their mortgage consultants are going to design a custom loan program just for you. And they'll save you a lot of money. No pressure. No upfront or hidden fees either. So make the 10-minute call to American Financing right now and get your free mortgage review. 
The number is 888-900-1828, 888-900-1828, or online at AmericanFinancing.net. American Financing, NMLS, 182334, www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Why give a lifetime appointment to a lawyer to serve on the highest court in the land when he or she are not going to comply with the Constitution? And you know, the left never gets scrutinized, do they? Those four leftist activists pretend justices. Shoulder to shoulder. You can never predict how they're going to vote. You know what? You mostly can predict how they're going to vote. In big, big cases, they tend to vote the same way. And we'll get these phony numbers from from newspapers trying to cover for Roberts and Gorsuch from time to time. And they'll say, you know, 83% of the time they all vote here. We're not talking about 83% of the time. We're talking about decisions that matter to the country, not merely the parties. Not merely the parties. So who the hell is John Roberts? Or who the hell is Elena Kagan? Or who the hell is Gorsuch? Who the hell are any of these people? To sit there and rewrite legislation. Doing more damage to representative government than the British did at the founding of the country. Because they do it under color of being the, uh, being the, uh, the, the justices of the, of the United States. But they're going to be celebrated because they're advancing statism. The left's agenda. It's hard to be Clarence Thomas. It's hard to be Sam Alito. Kavanaugh seems to be hanging in there. We'll see how long that lasts. It's early yet. But can you imagine Clarence Thomas? Day in and day out, he has to listen to this crap. Then he has to read it. And unfortunately, Scalia is not there anymore. I thought Gorsuch would be the next Scalia. He's not. Not even close. Alito's doing a hell of a good job. But the superstar in the court is Clarence Thomas. Why? Because he follows the Constitution. He understands its relationship to the Declaration of Independence. He understands why he's there. John Roberts follows the Washington Post style section. And the New York Times. And they're all excited because Chuck Schumer was crying on the floor of the Senate today. He didn't expect this decision. Well, of course not. And look how it's being reported. The decision today was fascistic in that it completely defied the rule of law and defied the separation of powers. We have a legislature. If you're a third grader, you know it's called Congress. We have an executive branch, which is headed by the president. Then we have courts, the judiciary. The Supreme Court's in the Constitution. The other courts are created by Congress. Each has an obligation. Now, in some areas, they overlap. But when it came to Monday's decision, and when it comes to today's decision, there was no overlap. It was as clear as night and day. But you put on the robe, man, and that power, it's irresistible. 
I'll be right back. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. You know, we have a little chat here from time to time. Mr. Producer, Mr. Call Screener, and I. Sometimes, even before I talk to them, I talk to my wife about issues I'm going to take on that can become explosive or controversial. And I'm always careful to try and handle it in as professional and mature way as I can. And that was yesterday. With respect to the charges against Officer Roth and the day before yesterday. You remember that, Mr. Producer? I said, look, I got to take a stand on this. This is no place for people to be meek. Sometimes you just got to do what's right, and the charges against him are an abomination. This prosecutor is an abomination. And Mr. Brooks has a long rap record, and nobody's talking about it. So I talked about it. I posted about it. And now you see today, tonight, more hosts on TV and radio and more columnists now are talking about it. And this is important. But the first one out of the gate, and I don't seek to be the first one out of the gate. You know, when there's breaking news out there and I'm not sure I believe it or I need to get more facts, I'm not the first one out of the gate. I hold back. But I'll be the first one out of the gate when I've drawn a conclusion based on reason, based on what I see and based on what I hear, regardless of what other people may or may not do. And I said the other day, and I'll say it again, if I were a police officer and I had a lot of sick leave and vacation leave, I'd take it right now. Right now. They have a right to mostly peaceably protest too. They're American citizens, too. You got teachers who strike all across the country. You've got uh, transit individuals who strike all across the country. You have baseball players who strike. And so, okay, fine. While the police can't strike, they have their ways, too, to protest, and they should use them. Because when you're surrounded by anarchy, there shouldn't be just one profession that stands up to it and is brutalized as a result of it. prosecutor like this, our media, these politicians are endangering all of us. It's going to reach your community no matter where you live. Police are not going to want to be police anymore. Children are not going to want to be police anymore. You're the enemy right out of the box. Everything is viewed through the lens of the left. Thanks mostly to the media, but everything's viewed through the lens of the left. This prosecutor in Atlanta should be disbarred, in my humble opinion. The way he conducted that press conference, I talked about this and I posted on this as well. That's not how you treat a serious criminal case.
And no, Mr. Brooks wasn't the victim. He was the aggressor. Everything he did led to his shooting. And now we know, thanks to the Daily Mail, not CNN, not MSNBC or the New York Slimes or the Washington Compost or any of the rest of the crap. No, the Daily Mail, a liberal British outlet. Now we know, thanks to them, that Mr. Brooks had to be worried that uh, a DUI would wind up putting him back in prison. And what do we get commenting on all this? Social behavioral professors. Why do I give a damn what a professor has to say? All right, I want to circle back to the court. The Supreme Court is destroying itself. And you can thank Justice Roberts and other justices on that court for doing exactly that, losing respect. Maybe not in Washington, D.C., but in much of the rest of the country. Because it is denying us our representative government. It is undermining the Constitution these justices are expected to uphold, and they swear to uphold. And this is exactly why I have in my book, The Liberty Amendments, that no justice should serve more than 14 years. Now, you might say, what about Clarence Thomas? Well, Clarence Thomas is in the minority. It's not about Clarence Thomas. It's about getting control over this, what it's become, into quasi-Politburo. It's amazing we have to celebrate when it actually upholds the Constitution. Chuck Schumer celebrates when it doesn't. That's my point. Why have a lifetime appointment? If people are going to make personal policy decisions and then wrap them up in the Constitution while they're, while they're undermining the Constitution, what's the point? I want to walk you through memory lane of a few of these justices and who they are, just so you understand, again, that these are not particularly special people, although some special people have been justices. But not all, that's for sure. There haven't been that many of them. John Rutledge was appointed by George Washington in, 19, in uh, 1795 by recess appointment. He also became the nation's second chief justice after John Jay. He was a United States senator from South Carolina. He wrote that After the death of his wife, his mind was frequently so much deranged as to be in great measure deprived of his senses. In other words, he became demented. He had dementia. Rutledge's depression was so serious that he made two failed suicide attempts, one shortly before and one soon after the Senate rejected his nomination. So he had the recess appointment, and then uh, he didn't get the final appointment. Henry... Brockholst Livingston, appointed by Jefferson in 1806. He'd killed a man in a duel before his appointment. Henry Baldwin, appointed by Andrew Jackson in 1830. In 1832, it was reported that he was, quote, seized today with a fitted derangement. Less than two weeks later, Daniel Webster alerted a friend to the breaking out of Judge Baldwin's insanity, so he had dementia. And the Democrat Party is about to nominate somebody who's got issues. But it doesn't matter. Robert C. Greer. These were all Supreme Court justices. Appointed by James Polk in 1846. He suffered paralysis in 1867 and thereafter began a slow mental decline. 
Greer's case is most troubling because he was the wrong, he was the swing vote in one of the most important cases of Azira, Hepburn versus Griswold, which struck down the law allowing the federal government to print paper money. Greer's demonstration of mental incapacity during the conference discussion was such that every one of his colleagues acknowledged that action had to be taken. And here we are as a nation watching the same thing with Joe Biden. But they pretend it's not happening. Nathan Clifford was appointed by James Buchanan in 1858 at a period of mental decline. Suffered a stroke in 1880, just before the beginning of the October term. Fellow Justice Miller described the situation. Judge Clifford reached Washington on the 8th of October, a babbling idiot. Why do I keep thinking of Biden, Mr. Producer? I saw him within three hours after his arrival, and he did not know me or anything. And though his tongue framed words, there was no sense to them. And he kept the seat until 1881. For years and years. Stephen J. Field, appointed by Abraham Lincoln in 1863, was one of the longest serving justices, and you never heard of him. As Chief Justice William Rehnquist has written, at the end of Field's service, he became increasingly lame and often seemed lethargic to his colleagues. During the winter of 1896-97, his condition worsened and his questions in the courtroom indicated he had no idea of the issues being presented by counsel. Joseph McKenna. McKenna was appointed by William McKinley in 1897. His mental faculties began to decline as he approached his 80s. After Chief Justice Taft failed to convince McKenna that it was time to retire, Taft called a meeting of the other justices at his home. They decided they could not allow McKenna to cast a deciding vote in the court's decisions. From then on, they agreed that if there was a split vote among them, they would change their votes and not allow the case to go forward. The court did hold a few cases over until McKenna finally agreed to retire in 1924. James C. McReynolds, here's a doozy. McReynolds was appointed by well-known segregationist and big-time progressive William, excuse me, Woodrow Wilson in 1914, and he was a notorious anti-Semite. He said he didn't want the courts, quote, plagued with another Jew, unquote, there's no official photograph for the court for 1924 because McReynolds refused to stand next to Justice Louis Brandeis, the court's first Jewish justice. He would leave the room <clears throat> whenever Brandeis would speak in conference. He was also openly hostile toward the second Jewish justice, Benjamin Cardozo. He often held a brief or record in front of his face when Cardozo delivered an opinion from the bench on opinion day. A McReynolds law clerk, John Knox, also wrote the justice disapproved of the fact that Knox had been polite to McReynolds' African-American servants, Harry and Mary. Hugo Black, appointed by Franklin Roosevelt in 1937, had been a member of the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama. He was a lawyer for the Klan. He stayed on the court longer than he should have. In 1969, he suffered a stroke, quote, resulting in a partial loss of memory, unquote. His health troubles became worse. In March 1971, he started having acute pain in his left ear and a chronic headache over his eye and in the back of his head. Aspirin couldn't help. He found it more difficult to concentrate. His short-term memory was waning. He would latch onto some event of long ago and reminisce. 
Black's mental decline seemed to lead to paranoia in the months before his resignation and death. Quote, Black was paranoid about the future, expressing fears of governmental collapse, that Nixon was preparing a military coup. You know, it sounds like CNN. Felix Frankfurter. Another justice appointed by Franklin Roosevelt in 1939. He helped launch the career of the notorious spy, Alger Hiss. Frankfurter had been a prominent professor at Harvard Law School. And before joining the court, he had great influence in getting his law students prestigious clerkships for Supreme Court justices. And a notable clerk he obtained for Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes was a student named Alger Hiss. At Frankfurter's urging, Hiss became a public service career that included service as a delegate to the Alta Conference, where FDR, Churchill, and Stalin set the boundaries of post-war Europe. Hiss would later be named by Whitaker Chambers as a spy for the Soviet Union. He was tried for perjury in Frankfurter in an unprecedented move for a sitting Supreme Court justice, served as a character witness for Hiss at the trial, as did Associate Justice Stanley Reed, another FDR appointee. And although Frankfurter obviously would not have known of Hiss's eventual ties to the Soviet Union as a communist spy, he knew of the specific charges when he decided to lend the prestige of his high position to Hiss's defense. In Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, Frankfurter behaved in a manner that most legal ethicists would consider extremely troubling. He collaborated with a former clerk, Philip Elman, who was serving in the Solicitor General's office in the executive branch. <coughs> Frankfurter passed confidential information on to Elman about the positions of his fellow justices in, co- in their uh, conference in the Brown case, and he advised him on arguments the government should make to sway the court. William O. Douglas, another FDR appointee, 1939. In a particularly bizarre episode, Douglas met a flight attendant on a plane and invited her to visit him at the court, where he allegedly physically assaulted her, was chasing her around the conference table. And trying to rip at the woman's clothing. I guess he'd be part of the Me Too thing, wouldn't he, Mr. Producer? Unless his name's Biden. That would change everything. In his last year on the court, Douglas suffered at times from delusion. He had a stroke in 1974, which incapacitated him at the age of 76 for two and a half months. <clears throat> Though he told the press he had fallen and hurt himself. Slurred his words, he couldn't walk, he developed fears that people were trying to kill him, though he was chief justice and spurned pleas that he quit. Things were so bad that justices themselves took actions. His refusal to step down despite obvious mental and physical problems led colleagues to decide secretly to stop counting his vote in some cases. Charles Whitaker, 1957 Eisenhower, was said to be vacillating and indecisive, and the pressures of the court led him to have a nervous breakdown. Abe Fortas. LBJ appointed Fortas to the court in 1965. He continued to act as an advisor to Johnson while sitting on the court. He supplemented his court salary, 39005 at the time, by making money from a foundation set up by a convicted stock swindler. Fortas resigned from the Supreme Court after it was revealed that while on the bench, 
He pocketed a $20,000 retainer from the foundation of jailed financier Lewis Wolfson. And I can go on. Thurgood Marshall. Oh, yes. Thurgood Marshall in his latter years. He spent a lot of his time watching soap operas, according to insiders, among other things. You can look at Alcee Hastings as a federal district judge and why he was impeached. These are just human beings, imperfect. And they ought not be undermining the Constitution and separation of powers as Roberts is doing on a continual basis and now Gorsuch is flirting with the same thing. I'll be right back. Lovin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. So what makes these justices think that they can make decisions for the American people? They're just lawyers. Power. Power goes to their head. Your honor. Your honor. You've written a decision. Everybody must comply. And by the way, the reason I read you that list is to think that they're all mentally healthy, to think that they're all psychologically and emotionally healthy is to think wrong. I don't know in particular cases, but they're just like the rest of society. I'll be back. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. You know, Larry Elder is actually one of the smartest people I've ever heard speak. Can you believe that? And uh, he's courageous. He is a patriot. And he wants to make things right in this country. And so he tries to inform as many of us as possible about the principles that make this country so great. And he also wants to inform us about those that don't make this country so great. And he's come out with an outstanding documentary, Uncle Tom, UncleTom.com. Larry Elder, how are you, my friend? Mark, I am really, really well. And as Charlton Heston once told me, Thank you for letting me borrow your audience. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So tell us about this documentary, why you decided to do it, and what's involved in it. Well, it took us uh, two years to do it. 
Uh, and I decided to do it because a young filmmaker approached me a couple of years ago, Mark, and wanted to interview me for a film he's doing called Uncle Tom. And as often happens, the filmmakers come and they go, and I didn't think I was going to see this guy again, because often they come up with all sorts of ideas, they never get the funding for the film, it never happens. So he comes back a few months later and says, I want to show you the interview that I did. And Mark, I don't like watching myself in an interview, but I love the style, I love the way he did it, he did it in black and white, I thought it was a sensitive interview, he showed me a couple of other interviews he did, I loved the questioning, and I said, well, how far are you along in getting this movie done? He said, uh, nowhere. He told me how much money he needed to have, how little he had, and I said, look, if I get involved in this film, make me your executive producer, I'll raise the money, give me a hand in writing it, and we'll get this thing done. It took us two years, and we did. And uh, Mark, it's all about the crap, the grief, the, the pushback that people like Candace Owens, people like Herman Cain, people like Alan West, uh, people like Bob Woodson get for daring to suggest maybe, just maybe, we ought not, like Lemmings, be pulling that lever for the Democratic Party to the tune of 95%. This is the party, after all, that opposes vouchers. Mark, I went to Crenshaw High School. That was a school that was featured in the movie Boys in the Hood. There was a front-page article in the L.A. Times a few years ago. Three percent of kids in my high school could do math at grade level. It's also a Crip school, meaning the gang called the Crips run the school. The reason I know that is that Ice-T went to my high school, and he told me that he chose the high school because he wanted to go to a Crip school. Now, if you're a parent in that geographical area of Crenshaw High School, you are mandated to send your kid to a school where only 3% of kids can do math at grade level, and that it's run by the Crips. The Republican Party wants to give you an option wants the money to follow the kid rather than the other way around. Uh, and all I am doing and other conservatives are doing who are black are saying, wait a second, if the route to the middle class is education and one party wants to give me a better shot at getting a quality education and one doesn't, why am I blindly pulling that lever for the Democratic Party just because of the assumption that I think racism is a major problem in America? And the movie explores this issue. It talks about the history of the Democratic Party, how racist it's been, the fact that Republicans as a percentage voted more for the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 then did Democrats. The lie that all of a sudden in mass, the racists in the Democrat Party uh, left and became racist in the Republican Party. Uh, and about the grief that people get for simply suggesting maybe you don't want to be in a party of Roe v. Wade when 25% of abortions are on uh, black females. Maybe you don't want to be in the party that wants open borders when professors like George Borjas from Harvard says there's no question that unskilled illegal aliens take away jobs that otherwise would be held by unskilled black and brown workers living in the inner city, and these illegal aliens put downward pressure on their wages. So maybe, just maybe, we ought to be rethinking our allegiance to the Democratic Party. And instead of this igniting a healthy discussion within the black community, people like myself and others are derided as Uncle Toms and dismissed. Why? And the answer is twofold. The media dismisses us because the media is bought into this narrative that racism, systemic racism, structural racism, choose your favorite word. I heard a new one the other day from Beto O'Rourke, foundational racism. Uh, they all believe that. And the Democrats want black people to believe it because how else are you going to get uh, a party that is on the wrong side on vouchers, on the wrong side on abortion, on the wrong side of illegal immigration, and hurting the very people that you want to vote for you unless you can convince them that these guys over there, these dastardly Republicans, 
Republicans, they wear the black hat, and we Democrats, we wear the white hat. And so they've tortured the history, they've, they've white, uh, airbrushed their history, so that most people don't know that the Democratic Party unanimously opposed the 13th Amendment that freed the slaves, the 14th Amendment that gave newly freed slaves the right to citizenship, and the 15th Amendment that at least on paper gave uh, these newly freed slaves the right to vote. Most people are unaware that Democrats started the KKK. I didn't say the Democratic Party, but Democrats started the KKK. And most people are unaware that as a percentage, more Republicans voted for the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 than did Democrats. And this movie explores some of the history as well. But Mark, the important thing is this. It's not an angry movie. It's not a defensive movie. It's not a how-dare-you movie. It's a why can't I, as an independent, free-thinking American, have a set of views without me being accused of hating my own people? What's wrong with that? And what is wrong with you that causes you to have that kind of attitude? It's a movie that really suggests that I feel sorry for those people. Uh, we're not angry. We're not mad. We've, we're standing up for the truth, for facts, uh, and for our values. We're, we're, we're disturbed that we can't have an intelligent, healthy conversation with the other side. It's UncleTom.com. Please write it down. Put it in your system, UncleTom.com. Come Friday, you can watch this documentary, which really does sound outstanding. You know, Larry, you're pushing against a very, very big tide, actually a tidal wave, because the left controls the media, academia, Hollywood, right. uh, basically the culture. Right. And what I sense you're trying to do here is uh, say, okay, well, we have to fight back. We have really no alternative. We can't use their platforms because they won't allow it. They don't really believe in academic freedom and free speech. So we have to create our own ability to communicate with people. So it's very important that people watch this and tell other people about it, correct? Absolutely. And Mark, you're, taught, you're absolutely right about the left-wing culture, and, and, and they're winning. When you have somebody as respected as Drew Brees for crying out loud, making the most innocuous statement, all he said was, I will never agree with somebody who disrespects the flag. He didn't say, I won't play with them, I don't want to own my team, I want the commissioner to start a new rule. He said nothing like that, and apologizes, and apologizes again, and his wife apologizes, and the editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer resigns because he approved a headline about buildings being burned called All Buildings Matter, and the editorial page editor of the New York Times resigned because he approved a, a, a column, a straightforward, commonsensical column by a respected Republican senator. 800 staffers uh, rebel, and this guy ends up resigning. This is where we are in our culture. Uh, Gone with the Wind has now been removed from uh, HBO Max because it's too, it's too insensitive. It's going to be put back with a disclaimer. This is sick. And, and, and Mark, the whole premise seems to be that we black people are concerned about not getting our feelings hurt. Well, every single uh, study I've seen in the last 30 years shows that black people have higher self-esteem than whites, especially young black girls having much higher self-esteem than young white girls who are kind of obsessed with a Barbie doll kind of image. Black women are much more healthy about the varieties of their bodies. So black people are not suffering from low self-esteem. So what's the point behind all of this? It's not cancel culture, Mark. It's a revenge culture. And that's what reparations are all about. Reparations are the extraction of money from people who are never slave owners to be given to people who are never slaves. The whole thing is absurd. We ought to pick up our cards and, and play them to the best of our ability in the greatest country that God ever created. Did I just 
go to sleep? Uh, or did America elect a black president in 2008 who got reelected despite a, a tepid economy in 2012? Did I, did I sleep through the fact we had back-to-back black uh, uh, secretaries of state under George W. Bush, back-to-back black attorneys general under Barack Obama? Did I sleep through that? All of a sudden, we're talking more about institutional racism and systemic racism and structural racism than when Obama was in office. What's up with that, Mark? Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, when you look at the Senate, if 95% of the black vote, 90% of the black vote is delivered to the Democrat Party, wow, I have to say, based on how the Democrats think, black people are very, very uh, poorly represented in the United States Senate. Uh, I, I have said that if there was a law against uh, leadership malpractice, a bunch of these people in, in, the, in the House especially, uh, they'd be on death row. Look at these cities. Look at the proliferation of, of kids being born outside of wedlock. It's, it's gone from 25% in 1965 to 70% right now. And forget about elder. Barack Obama said a kid raised without a father is five times more likely to be poor and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, 20 times more likely to end up in jail. Now, the question is, what caused this proliferation of kids being born outside of wedlock? And the answer, of course, is the welfare state. What we've done is incentivize women to marry the government, and we've incentivized men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. And now 25% of white kids are born outside of wedlock. Nearly 50% of Hispanic kids are born outside of wedlock. It has been a neutron bomb dropped on this country, and we're not even having a discussion about that. We're having a discussion about institutional racism. Are you nuts? Look at Baltimore, Mark. 2015, where Freddie Gray died, the mayor is black. The number one person running the police department, black. The number two guy, black. City council, all Democrats, majority, black. The state attorney who brought the charges against the six officers, black. Three of the six officers, black. The judge before whom two of the officers tried their case, and by the way, the judge found them both not guilty, black. At the time, the U.S. attorney, Loretta Lynch, black. And the president of the United States, black. And we're talking about institutional racism. As Wanda Sykes once said, how are you going to complain about the man when you are the man and how do they complain about the man when they are the man they they suggest that the man was not able to overcome the uh, institutional racism and the jim crow legacy that is bedeviling the, the, the country that's why obama said uh racism is in america's dna and, and mark you know he doesn't believe it if he thought racism was in america's dna how does somebody who's been serving in the congress for a year can't even pronounce his name picks off an incumbent uh senator uh, a a a front-runner senator uh, former senator hillary clinton financed uh, advised by her husband, one of the most skillful politicians I've ever seen, and this guy knocks her off, gets a nomination, and gets elected and re-elected, and he really believes racism is in America's DNA? You know he doesn't believe it. He gave a speech before he became uh, president at a black college, and he said, my generation, the Joshua generation, has to get us that additional 10%. The MLK generation, the Moser generation, Obama said at the time, got us 90% of the way there. Now, if we're 90% of the way there before he became president, I would imagine we're even more uh, the way there. Uh, and does somebody like that really truly believe that racism, systemic racism, uh, structural racism, uh, foundational racism is really holding black people back in 2008? No, he does not. Does that really tell his, tell his daughters, who he sent to a very fine school to get an education the way he got an education? He understands education is the way to go. 
Why isn't he talking about that? Why isn't he harping on the fact that a black kid does way less homework than a Hispanic kid, than a white kid, and way less homework than an Asian kid? Why are we talking about that? Instead, we're talking about this nonsense. Why? Because the Democrats need black people to be angry, because if you get them angry, they'll vote 95% for us, because we've convinced them that these guys over here are devils, and that racism remains this major problem in America, when in fact it has never been more insignificant than it is right now. Well, let's let's chip at this one one more time here, this systemic racism. I hear it from, as an example, LeBron James, okay? LeBron James is nearly a billionaire. He's got multiple estates. He's got a massively expensive car collection. He's got all kinds of business ties with Nike and China and all the rest of it. LeBron James doesn't live in these communities he talks about, does he? He doesn't send his kids to these schools that he talks course, about. He, he lives among the systemically racist, I guess. And, <laughs> and, and, and here's my question to you. Why doesn't he? Uh, for the same reason I don't live in South Central Los Angeles. For the same reason that uh, Frank Sinatra doesn't live in Hoboken, New Jersey. Come on, grow up. You, you get some money, uh, you live into a nicer area because you want uh, safety, comfort, and, and beauty. Look, LeBron James claims that somebody scrawled uh, the N-word on his fence. Remember that? That was a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. uh, by the time the police arrived, somehow the squall had been painted over. Now, you're telling me that somebody painted the N-word on your fence, you call 911, and you paint it before the cops arrive? Why? Well, he said because he wants the neighborhood to see the word. Well, he has a pocket gate. Uh, so the gate folds in. You couldn't even see it if he closed it if he wanted to. My point is, I don't believe it really happened. I believe it is drama. I believe a lot of these very, very wealthy people don't want other non-wealthy people uh, to think that they've sold out, that they've become too establishment, that they've become too white. So it's fashionable to complain about nonsense the way uh, Oprah did years ago when she went to a store and somebody assumed she didn't have the ability, money to pay for the store. Oh, my goodness, it, I'm, I'm, I'm a victim of racism. So that's what I believe lebron james is doing and the data just did not support this lebron james tweeted after the death of of arbery um the man jogging in uh, in georgia we can't even leave our house without us being hunted down are you nuts of the homicides in this country half of them are black victims and almost all these black victims were killed by other black people the instance of an interracial homicide is very rare last year there were roughly 750 black white homicides 500 whites were killed by blacks 250 blacks were killed by whites even though whites are 60 percent of the population and blacks are 13 percent of the population so you want to play that game white people have far more to fear from blacks than the other way around and you're talking about interracial violent crime black white non-homicide roughly 600,000 acts every year 85 percent of the time it is a black perpetrator and a white victim only 15 percent the other way around so lebron james you really want to play the game about who ought to fear who you're not going to win well larry elder i want to thank you for coming on uh you really are fond of wisdom UncleTom.com sounds like a terrific documentary. We will be there. Uh, all the Venites here. We will post it on our social sites, Mark Levin Show Facebook, Mark Levin Show Twitter. It's out Friday, so we just go to UncleTom.com. And God bless you, my friend. It's an entertaining, fun movie. It will not bore you. I promise you, you will not regret it. All right. And take care of yourself. We will check it out. And we'll be right back. Mark Levin.
Well, they uh, they keep telling us there's an increase in the uh, Wuhan, China coronavirus, COVID nineteen, well, illness, contagion, and the gestation period's like uh, ten to fourteen days, right, Mister Producer? So what's been happening the last 10 or 14 days? Mostly peaceful protests, right? Except for those parts that aren't mostly peaceful. Lots of protests all over the country. So why don't we blame Antifa? Why don't we blame Black Lives Matter? Why don't we blame all the, the college-age morons who are out there doing stupid things? No. It's Trump's fault. You understand. Do you realize if Joe Biden's elected president, it's the first time the American people will have elected somebody who's mentally incapacitated? I've told you this before. The 25th Amendment was adopted for somebody who's elected president and becomes incapacitated. But is our generation so bizarre that we would elect somebody who actually violates the 25th Amendment in advance, Mr. Producer? No. And boy, he'll be able to stare down G because he'll be staring down G with a very empty look on his face. Can you imagine him as president and then uh, Pelosi, mumbling, bumbling Pelosi, and then the buffoon Schumer? Oh, what three stooges there. How much of your budget goes towards bills? I'm talking credit cards, car payments, even your mortgage. I have a feeling it's quite a bit. And I also have a feeling you just pay those bills month after month without ever really thinking about how much you're spending on interest. But don't do that. Instead, call my friends at American Financing. Do it right now. You see, mortgage rates are still near record lows. And you can refinance any high interest debt into your mortgage at a much lower rate, which can mean up to $1,000 in monthly savings. That's a ton. Now, I think American Financing, and I like them because they offer customer loan programs without starting your term over, not some big conglomerate. It's a family-owned enterprise, and they really do work for you. And if you call them now, you get a free mortgage review, free mortgage review, allowing you to see how much you, know, you can actually save. You may even be able to postpone two mortgage payments. So it's very much worth your time to look into this for just 10 minutes, and don't wait any longer. Call 888-900-1828. That's 888-900-1828. Or go online at AmericanFinancing.net. American Financing, NMLS 182334, www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. We don't normally have one guest, let alone two. Rare days we have three, but tonight we're going to have two. You heard the great Larry Elder, but this hour coming up, the great Dinesh D'Souza. And he wants to have a chat with you about socialism. I'll be right back. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. 
Robert Lighthizer is a longtime attorney, an excellent attorney, a trade attorney. That's his expertise. And that's what he does for the President of the United States. And he has to stare down all kinds of tyrants, including Xi and his surrogates in communist genocidal China. And uh, yesterday, he happened to be at a Senate Finance Committee hearing, and some of this Bolton stuff was, uh, was revealed. Uh, Sunday night, ABC wants you all to tune in. I won't be tuning in. Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, I'll be doing Life, Liberty, and Levin. No gossip, no fiction, just the facts. But I want you to hear what Lighthizer has to say. And here we are discussing another book about the President of the United States. There have been more books written about this president, more people making money off the backs of this president than I have ever seen before. Because they know that there are publishers who want to do this, and they know there's a market for this, and they know they'll get all kinds of media attention. Maybe I'll write a tell-all book about John Bolton. I mean, I did work with him for years, you know. Nobody will give a damn, though. Anyway, Bob Menendez is questioning, and Bob Menendez has been skating on thin ice his entire adult life. You may recall there was a trial in New Jersey, a corruption trial, uh, and he skated not guilty. And one of his character witnesses was Lindsey Graham. Bizarre. But take a listen. Cut 12. Go. About an hour ago, the Washington Post published a story that says uh, former National Security Advisor Bolton said that at one point in that meeting, President Trump, quote, turned the conversation into the coming U.S. presidential election, alluding to China's economic capability to affect the ongoing campaigns, pleading with Xi to ensure he'd win. That's the end of the quote. Absolutely untrue. Never happened. I was there. I have no recollection of that ever happening. I don't believe it's true. I don't believe it ever happened. Okay, so now you now you fully recollect that you were there. No, I was at the meeting. Would I have recollected something as crazy as that? Of course I would recollect it. I was at the meeting. I told you, you that. Sure at the beginning that you were like at the meeting. Happened. So now that I know you're at the meeting. All right, stop. Hey, Menendez. What a sleazeball you are. He's trying to explain it. You don't, he, he's not giving you the answer you want. Isn't that the problem? Go ahead. You, in essence, dispute uh, Ms., uh, Mr. Bolton's account of what took place, right? I told, yes, that's correct. I, I mean, I, I, I don't want you to create the impression that I'm being deceptive. I said what meeting I was at, and this never happened in it, for sure. Okay. Completely crazy. How much clearer can Lighthouser be? Completely crazy. And Lighthizer's not being paid to say that. John Bolton's being paid to say what he did say. Um, Nancy Pelosi now really wants to wipe out all vestiges of slavery and racism, except, of course, when it comes to the honors that her father received as mayor of Baltimore, uh, which, uh, of course, he was very, very enthusiastic about a Confederate statue that was raised in Baltimore and more than that he praised the Confederates Nancy Pelosi continues to proudly run under the banner of Democratic Party even though the Democratic Party was the party of the Confederacy and the party of slavery there's no denying that I don't need snoops or PolitiFact or anybody that's the history those are the facts 
And that's who all the athletes are going to vote for and all Hollywood's going to vote for, the Democrat Party. The party of slavery back, back when. It's in their DNA. I've said many times before, I'm not against reparations as long as they're paid by the Democrat Party. That's all. Republican Party wasn't for slavery. The Democrat Party was for slavery, so they ought to pay reparations. What's wrong with that? Bob Johnson, what's wrong with that? Let them come up with $14.7 trillion. But Nancy Pelosi, as you can imagine, being an unprincipled buffoon, uh, is very imprecise about what it is that she wants to take out when it comes to racism. She is focused on the Confederacy. She's not focused on her party. She's not focused on her father. And she's not focused on Robert Byrd. I brought this up to you last week and the week before. Robert Byrd, who'd been a majority leader of the United States Senate for the Democrats, that means the Democrat senators voted for him to be their leader. And he was a minority leader for a long time as well. And they also put him as chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee. Now, Robert Byrd wasn't your... You know, you're died in the wool, may I say, Klansman. He was a Grand Klegel, Mr. Producer. A Grand Klegel. In other words, a big muckety-muck. Now, those of you who know even in passing the history of West Virginia, West Virginia was part of Virginia. And he broke off from Virginia. And it was mostly supportive of the Union. But Robert Byrd, even in the movie Glory, puts on the gray uniform of the Confederacy, and in that movie where he is a bit part, he's fighting for the Confederacy. Now, the media won't talk about Robert Byrd because they used to love Robert Byrd. Robert Byrd was a big, spending, old-time liberal. Now, when you go to West Virginia, his name is everywhere. It's on bridges. It's on monuments. It's on courthouses. Black Lives Matter isn't there, scrawling all over it, desecrating, graffiti. Antifa's not there. Maybe they're there to harm innocent Americans, but they're not there to turn down, tear down his statues. We don't even have to go all the way back to the Confederacy. The guy was around not that long ago. This is modern American history. And when he died, virtually every major Democrat Party figure eulogized him. And that Bob Byrd was really a special guy. He was, Obama did, Biden did, Clinton did, Hillary did, you name it. Bob Byrd. While we're pulling down statues, that was Bob. Robert, Senator Robert Byrd's extraordinary life has been shaped by service to a state love of his country, and commitment to the common good. Throughout his historic career, throughout his historic career, in the House and Senate, he never stopped working to improve the lives of the people of West Virginia. While some simply bore witness to history, Senator Byrd shaped it, sure did, and strove to build a brighter future for us all. Senator Byrd took pride in his status as Congress's foremost scholar on the Constitution. I don't believe he was really up on the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the so-called Civil War Amendments, but what do I know? 
I don't believe he was really up on the 1964 Civil Rights Act, uh, which he helped the filibuster and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. But never mind, this is Nancy. He never hesitated to speak truth to power, she said. He was a voice of reason during times of war and economic hardship. (laughs) He was always a gentleman, capable of charming any friend or foe. And he always stood on principle, even when others did not. Now just listen to this. You can talk about a faraway Confederate general. This is not a faraway Democrat leader. And they're praising the hell out of him. Praising the hell out of him. Now, Daily Wire over here points out that Nancy Pelosi just sent a letter to the House clerk, Cheryl Johnson, requesting the removal of four previous House speakers to honor June 10th or 10th, which is observed June 19th. I never heard of this until this year. Had you, Mr. Producer? So, so Juneteenth, teeth, tenth teeth, whatever, it, that's now uh, a national holiday. Because it commemorates the ending of slavery in the United States. And so Pelosi wrote, to appropriately observe Juneteenth this year, I write today to request the immediate removal of the portraits in the U.S. Capitol of four previous speakers who served in the Confederacy. Robert Hunter of Virginia. 1839 to 1840. This is really shocking that now we're going to take down portraits and statues. It's important that they stay. Not because, I don't know anybody who supports the Confederacy and slavery. It's important that they stay so people know who these speakers are. Never mind. In today's world, doesn't matter. Robert Hunter of Virginia, 1839 to 1841. Hal Cobb of Georgia. 1849 to 1851. James Orr of South Carolina, 1857 to 1859. And Charles Crisp of Georgia, 1891 to 1895. She said, the portraits of these men are symbols that set back our nation's work to confront and combat bigotry. And she wants to move the 11 Confederate statues from the Capitol building. Shouldn't Robert Byrd's picture or statues all be removed from the Capitol building, ladies and gentlemen? Shouldn't they? I would think so. They should all be removed. Shouldn't it be sandblasted off the walls and the monuments and the memorials in West Virginia? If we're going to do a purge and we're going to do a cleansing, we've got to do it now. I think so. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Woodrow Wilson was one of the great progressives. He was a progressive intellectual before he was uh, even president of Princeton University. He was born in the segregated state of Virginia. He would become president of the United States, big progressive. He would win two terms, part of his second term. He had a stroke and he was incapacitated. Um, He was also a horrific racist. Even for his time, he was a big-time racist. 
And back in 2015, the students wanted to take his name off a building in Princeton. And one of the people who came to his defense was Joe Scarborough. That is, not the defense of his racism, but he wrote, Insanity breaks out at Princeton. Now Woodrow Wilson is a racist pig. Enough. Stand firm. President Eisgrubber, daily Princetonian. But that was then, and of course, Joe's different today. I want to tell you about the great Democrat, Woodrow Wilson. And I want to ask Nancy Pelosi if all his likenesses should be removed, if his name should be removed from all buildings. Because she's very selective in her, her moral offense. Woodrow Wilson resegregated the federal government. He oversaw the resegregation of multiple agencies of the federal government, which had been surprisingly integrated as a result of Reconstruction decades earlier. At an April 11, 1913 cabinet meeting, Postmaster General Albert, Albert Burleson argued for segregating the railway mail services. He took exception to the fact that workers shared glasses, towels, and washrooms. Wilson offered no objection to Burleson's plan for segregation, saying he wished the matter adjusted in a way to make the least friction. This is from a left-wing site, Vox.com. Both Burleson and Treasury Secretary William McAdoo took Wilson's comments as authorization to segregate. Department of Treasury, the Post Office Department, both introduced screened-off workspaces, separate lunchrooms, and separate bathrooms. In 1913, an open letter to Wilson, W.E.B. Du Bois, great man, who had supported Wilson in a 1912 election before being disenchanted by his segregation policies, wrote of, quote, one colored clerk who could not actually be segregated on account of the nature of his work and who consequently had a cage built around him to separate him from his white companions of many years. That's right. Black people who couldn't logistically be segregated were put in literal cages. Outright dismissals were also common. Upon taking office, Wilson himself fired 15 out of 17 black supervisors of the Federal Service, replaced them with white people. After the Treasury and Post Office began segregating, many black workers were let go. The head of the government positions for, quote, Negroes in the South, a Negro's place in the cornfield, quote, unquote, to enable hiring discrimination going forward. In 1914, the federal government began requiring photographs on job applications. In 1914, a group of black professionals led by newspaper editor and Harvard alumnus Monroe Trotter met with Wilson to protest the segregation. Wilson informed Trotter, quote, segregation is not humiliating, but a benefit and ought to be so regarded by you gentlemen. When Trotter insisted it is untenable in the view of established facts to maintain that the segregation is simply to avoid race friction for the simple reason that for 50 years, white and colored clerks have been working together in peace and harmony in the federal government. Wilson admonished him for his tone. If this organization is ever to have another hearing before me, it must have another spokesman. Your manner offends me. Your tone with its background of passion. It's worth stressing Wilson's policies were racist even for his time. Presidents Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft, both Republicans, I think I should add, have been much better about appointing black statesmen to public office and other public figures, including whites, attacked Wilson's moves towards segregation. You see, part of the problem, ladies and gentlemen, is censorship by the media and indoctrination by schools. 
because they, the, the, the brief amount of information I'm providing you is not taught. The influential pro-civil rights journalist Oswald Garrison Vellard wrote that the Wilson administration, quote, has allied itself within the forces of reaction and put itself on the side of every torture, of every oppressor, of every perpetrator of racial injustice in the South or the North. And he further attacked it for its political stupidity. He said the administration had put into the hands of the Republican Party an issue which, if they have the sense to use it, may be just the touchstone they are seeking. Woodrow Wilson was a vocal defender of the Ku Klux Klan. Wilson was governor of New Jersey when he became president in 1913, but he'd been born in Virginia and raised in Georgia and South Carolina. He was, historian William Kyler notes, the first Southerner elected to the presidency since Zachary Taylor in 1848. Southern racists accordingly rejoiced his election. Washington was flooded with revelers from the old Confederacy whose people had long dreamed of a return of those glory days. Wilson himself was the descendant of Confederates. It goes on and on and on. This guy was bad. Very bad. The white men were roused by a mere instinct of self-preservation until at last there had sprung into existence a great Ku Klux Klan, a veritable empire of the South, to protect the southern country, quote-unquote. Woodrow Wilson. And that made its way into the movie The Birth of a Nation. D.W. Griffin's infamous feature, Valorizing the Klan. A movie which Wilson much enjoyed. It goes on and on and on. They don't talk about Wilson because that was a hundred years ago. Because he was a left-wing progressive... Just like they don't talk about Franklin Roosevelt rounding up Japanese Americans. Mark Luffin, an unapologetic patriot and unapologetic constitutionalist. You can reach him at 877-381-3811. In just a moment, we're going to speak to Dinesh D'Souza about socialism. United States of Socialism, exactly. That's his book. Dinesh D'Souza has, as he always does, a powerful new book out called United States of Socialism. Who's behind it? Why it's evil? How to stop it? We see it playing out right in our streets today. Dinesh, how are you, sir? Hey, Mark. It's wonderful to be on the show. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. All right, let's get right into it. This book is extremely relevant today. Tell everybody why. I started the book before coronavirus, before the riots, before the Seattle occupation zone, but those have been kind of stunning vindications or corroborations of the uh, idea of moving toward a United States of Socialism. The reason I wrote the book is that I came to America in the late 1970s. I witnessed, in a sense, the collapse of socialism in Russia, in China, in India. Uh, it seemed that socialism was, had been put, as Reagan put it, on the ash heap of history. And then it made a startling comeback in the 21st century. And I saw it for the first time in this country's history moving toward the mainstream. And so I thought, how can this be? We have to account for the rise of this apparently new type of socialism, figure out how to refute it, how to defeat it, um, both in its ideology and in its nefarious tactics. Mm-hmm. And why is socialism bad? I know we know why, but just plainly, why is socialism bad? 
Think of it this way, and I'm going uh, to say why it's bad in its most benign form, which is not authoritarian socialism, but democratic socialism. Because a lot of leftists say, we don't want the socialism of Mao or Lenin. We know that a lot of people were killed under those regimes. We want democratic socialism, popular socialism. So imagine this. Imagine if I go to, go to school as a kid and I've got marbles in my pocket, and one guy jumps me, uh, takes over my marbles by force. That's authoritarian socialism. That's a form of theft. That's a form of gangsterism. But let's say I'm among a group of 10 people and they take a vote and eight of them by majority vote decide to do the same thing, to forcibly take my marbles and appropriate them and share them among themselves. So I ask myself, what's the difference between these two things? In the one case, I've been jumped by one guy. In the second case, I've been jumped by eight guys. But in both cases, I'm being robbed. So the point to make here is that democratic socialism, just because it is by rule by a majority, is not entitled to appropriate the earnings, wealth, and hard-earned possessions of other people. Mm-hmm. It's immoral at, at, at its core, isn't it? Well, it's immoral at its core, and it's a form of gangsterism. I mean, Abraham Lincoln, in his own way, put it so beautifully when he, when he defined slavery as, you work and I eat. Um, and at that time, socialism was just kind of coming into its own. But it's the same principle. It's the principle of confiscation. Of course, what we saw under coronavirus is that not only do we see the kind of, we, not only do we get a nasty foretaste of socialism in the form of empty shelves, limits on food, and so on, but also the attack on civil liberties. That is an essential hallmark of socialism. It isn't just an economic doctrine. It's also a cultural doctrine and a doctrine of personal intimidation. And yet it's the doctrine of our colleges and universities. It's the doctrine of Hollywood. It's the doctrine of the Democrat Party. Why is it at least perceived as being so uh, people-oriented? Why is it so popular among some? Well, first of all, the socialist politicians are, are very clever in using the kind of rhetoric of popular democracy. And you'll hear, for example, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders say something like, you know, we've got to have the people be in charge of the health care system, not the insurance companies. Now, it only takes a little bit of thoughtful reflection to realize that in these public institutions, the people, in fact, control nothing. I mean, what control do you or I have, Mark, over, let's say, the post office or the DMV. What control does the ordinary English-British guy have over the British National Health Service? None. So in reality, it's the politicians who control it, but they disguise it as the people are in control, and we are merely doing the people's bidding. And do you think the people who are sucked into this at some point, I'm not talking about Venezuela and other places where you have these, uh, these communist socialist regimes, I mean, like in our own country, do you think the people will wake up to this at some point before it's too late? Well, there is a there is a little slothful part of ordinary human nature that is attracted by socialism. You can see, for example, even with these perpetual lockdowns, I think what's really going on is the Democrats are sort of trying to say to people, hey, listen, isn't it kind of nice to be sitting on your couch? I mean, you've been doing it for two months. Why don't you keep doing it? I mean, who wants to get dressed and go to work and punch a time clock and uh, listen to your boss rave on and on? How about if we give you two grand a month to sort of stay perpetually where you are. Now, that, there's a little bit of all of us that goes, well, why not? So socialism in this country is it's sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul in the hope that you can now depend upon Paul's support and Paul's vote. Who's behind it? 
You, I would say earlier who's behind it is the little socialist constellation, the squad, Bernie Sanders, uh, AOC. But no, we've got to remember that socialism has extremely powerful allies in the media, in academia, in Hollywood, even in the digital world, uh, and it has now migrated to the mainstream of the Democratic Party. I mean, the Democrats did realize, look, we can't go with the explicit socialism of Sanders. Why? Because here's a guy who honeymoons in the Soviet Union. He praises breadlines. You know, who knows? He may come out in favor of gulags. That's a little bit too much. But what about if we go with the creeping socialism of Biden, Biden who, is, who used to be against free college, and now he's for it. He used to be for guns, and now he's against it. He's all on board with the Green New Deal, which is the largest package of socialist pro. I mean, it's the most ambitious socialist program since the Nazi 20-point program of 1920. So basically what we have here is, is the mainstream of the Democratic Party going along not only with socialist ideology, but with some of these gangster socialist tactics, including a paramilitary thugs on the street. If I may uh, point a privilege here, you're quite remarkable to me, Dinesh D'Souza, and I'm going to tell you why. You're obviously an intellect. You're able to communicate, however, with a, a broad swath of the American public. They tried to take you out over a ridiculous charge that nobody ever serves time for. You went to prison for several months. You come out. You're as motivated as ever before. What drives you? You know, I still remember, Mark, when I was 17 years old and I first saw America and I saw the airplane descending. This was actually over New York City and I saw the Statue of Liberty um, and I saw the skyline of New York and a very weird feeling came over me. I, I realized that my life was going to be completely different from that moment on. I felt I was moving from the sort of margin of the world to the center and I kind of knew, even without a political thought in my head, that if I stayed in America, I could be the architect of my own destiny. I could be in the driver's seat of my own life. So I, I believe in the American dream because I've lived it, and my politics is ultimately based on that. I, I grew up in socialism. India had socialism in the 70s. I remember my family had a ration card. It told you you could buy this much rice and this much sugar and this much cooking oil, and India at that time was the begging bowl of the world. So I can say from experience that socialism is a disaster. It doesn't work. Uh, the American system does work. I've experienced it myself, and that's why I'm willing to fight for it. Do you see it starting to slip away, America? I see it under siege in a manner that seems very startling to me. And, you know, the old socialists, they had confidence that they would win by a sort of scientific law of history. This was the old Marxist idea, that somehow the workers would automatically revolt. But, of course, that never happened in Marx's day, and it hasn't happened anywhere in the world to this day. So what does the left do now? They rely on engines of indoctrination called the university. Uh, I've said elsewhere that sort of academia is the theory and Antifa is the practice. When you are getting a relentless drumbeat that it's not just that there are bad cops and we need more good cops, but that all cops are bigots. And it's because they are part of a bigoted system and the country is racist. And it's been that way since 1776, if not before. I mean, that's going to make you want to throw a Molotov cocktail into a police precinct. So mm -hmm. the ideology that comes out of these universities is creating these robotic monsters that we see on the street. This is a fantastic book, United States of Socialism, Who's Behind It, Why It's Evil, How to Stop It, Dinesh D'Souza. I have a question. Uh, 
The, uh, and it's an excellent chapter, too. How did socialism come to America? A hundred years ago or so, an economist, Werner Sombart, said that socialism would not come to America, and he explained why. He says it's because the working class has it too good. And to quote him, all socialist utopias come to grief on roast beef and apple pie. Um, Now, the left in America has figured this out. They realize that they cannot depend on the working man. FDR did, but not anymore. So the left now practices what I call identity socialism. And what I mean by that is that they have married classic socialism, which is the division between the rich and the poor, uh, with identity politics. And so the left today is trying to divide society not just based on class, but based upon race, black against white, based on gender, male against female, based on sexual orientation, straight against gay, even based on immigration, legal versus illegal. And the point of creating these multiple forms of division is ultimately to assemble a popular majority of victimized groups. That's their political strategy. That's what they hope will deliver the White House for them in November. And what if they just tell the American people, what if they take the White House and the Senate and have the House uh, uh, post November? What's going to happen to the country? Well, ultimately, I think what they want to do is they want to have the majority, let's say the 51% majority, so they can openly loot and control the lives of the other 49. That's clearly their goal. They're looking for a democratic justification, not just for economic confiscation. See, this is the key. A lot of people think, well, okay, they're kind of trying to get me to pay more taxes and so on. No. The ordinary socialist in America today cares more about abortion than the minimum wage, more about transgender gender bathrooms than about universal basic income. I think at the end of the day, what you see in that Seattle autonomous zone, this idea that they basically forget about the Constitution, they have all these checkpoints, you've got to swear your fealty to revolutionary ideology before you go through, they want to reduce us ultimately to worms. They want, us, they want to make us take a knee. They want even the cops to take a knee, because ultimately that knee is a sign of liturgical subordination to the socialist left. Mm-hmm. Tanya, folks, it's a great book. I've linked to it on Mark Levin Show Facebook, Mark Levin Show Twitter. You can go there directly. That'll take you to Amazon. You go to Amazon.com directly. Uh, be a great Father's Day gift, too. If you order now, you can get it in time. And uh, if you're not a father, you may still enjoy it. I want to thank you, Dinesh D'Souza. Keep up the great work. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Be well. He's exceptional, isn't he, Mr. Producer? He's so good. He's Absolutely exceptional. And you know what? He doesn't have to tout himself. You read his books or you watch his documentaries, you want to tout him to your fellow citizen, right? Absolute breath of fresh air. United States of Socialism, Amazon.com. But if you happen to be on one of my sites, Mark Levin Show Facebook, Mark Levin Show Twitter, we have linked to it there. I strongly encourage you to get your copy. We'll be right back. Mark Levin. Very, very important. So this isn't an economic issue when it comes to these tech companies. It's not an economic issue anymore. It's a power issue. It's more of the the left's assault on our liberties. And so there needs to be an honest look at this. So Congress should repeal 
any of the immunities that these platforms have because they're not simply open spaces for the nation uh, where people can communicate. They're obviously not. And the antitrust division needs to look at them, too, because they're now working with NBC and other organizations to attack conservative groups. That's enough already. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. We don't kneel to the flag here. We don't kneel to the national anthem. No, 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 no. The only person we kneel to, nobody. We just kneel to God. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.